right, this is Hebrews 2020, and it is increment 178. We're entitling the message. Now, about this Melchizedek. Now, about this Melchizedek fellow. We're going to start and springboard from Hebrews 6.20 into this topic about this Melchizedek because the more we explore about this Melchizedek, the more we will see whom he prefigures and represents. And in considering Melchizedek, we just may see Jesus. We begin today with an announcement that takes in both of the commands of Paul to weep when others weep and rejoice when others rejoice. I'm speaking of the passing into the presence of our Lord, the glorious presence of our Lord, of a friend, a friend of Tetelestai, a friend of God, and a friend of mine, Fran Johns Sr., whose faithfulness to the word spanned the entire time of my being here, and he went to be with the Lord. We're a little bit out of sync here with the timing of this, and so I'm late and belated on this announcement. But his faithfulness, and he was a great believer, and many will attest to this, his faithfulness spanned the, almost the entire time of my being here and his departure from this life to be with his Lord happened just short of the 43rd anniversary of my arrival in Indiana, PA, where the Lord has graced me with 43 years of ministry in Western Pennsylvania. So I know Fran was ready to be with the Lord. I know that he's now reunited with Rochelle, his beloved daughter, whom he loved so dearly, and who preceded him into the heavenlies. <clears throat> Our prayer, according to Second Thessalonians 2.16 and 17, is that his children, grandchildren, friends, relatives that will miss him will experience from Jesus Christ himself and the Father the comfort, the consolation, and even <clears throat> the deep and abiding joy of the expectation of a reunion. And especially to his grandchildren, you should know that your grandfather was one of the greats. Greatness is not measured by talent, by athletic ability, by fame, but by faithfulness. <clears throat> and as I've said for many others, I believe that the record in Hebrews 11 is still being written and that Fran Johns will be written up in the Hall of Fame of the Heroes of Faith. And so I was grateful to have known him, and I know many in Tetelestai Phalanx will agree with me <clears throat> that his presence in our <clears throat> church expanded, <clears throat> excuse me, the magnification of his Savior, Jesus Christ, for he magnified Christ in his body. And we'll see you soon. We'll see you soon, friend. We also have, at the outset of this message today, a, an important announcement in that we are, despite our dispersion, carrying on with the Salvation Army Treasures for Children campaign. And we will be collecting toys <clears throat> from now, which 
this is the technically the November 14th message through December 14th so that gives you a month to collect and bring in toys for children in the area that may not have the advantage of being given Christmas gifts on Christmas morning so you can call the office at 724-335-3550 to drop off and that can be any time on weekends also and Kathy McClory will try to accommodate you as much as she can. Salvation Army Treasures for Children campaign then launched as of now and will end on December 14. Father, we thank you today <clears throat> for another history-making opportunity. I personally thank you today for all those who are listening to the word here online, on CDs or MP3s, DVDs. And I thank you for those who understand the purpose of our dispersion in these parts of two years now. <clears throat> and that the primary purpose that you have in mind for our dispersion is to bring us to a radical attentiveness to your word and to a radical concentration on what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church at this time. So, Father, I ask for the voice and the clarity, the mouth and the wisdom to make known a message in such a way that your Son is magnified and that your Son will increase and the awareness of him will increase in us as our own self-occupation decreases. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Basileus Dikaiosune, Basileus Irenes. Jesus Christ, as prefigured in Melchizedek, is King of Righteousness and King of Peace. We'll be going to Hebrews 7, verse 1 for this and the messages I announced in the beginning now about this Melchizedek. The PT springboards from the last clause in Hebrews 6.20, which says, having become an archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek, referring to Jesus, into a detailed analysis of this Melchizedek in 7.1 and following. He begins that analysis with the demonstrative pronoun utos in the Greek text. And I, again, I'm trying to be balanced here, not get too involved in the minutia of the Greek exegesis, but just enough to get the meaning here. Utos is the word E-U-T-O-O-U-T-O-S in English transliteration or hutos, and that word hutos is a pronoun and it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also refers to him, followed by the exegetic use of the particle gar, and I just want to do this because I want to show you why I translate things the way I do. And my job is, as every pastor's is, every teacher's of the Bible is, to give the sense. I can't emphasize that enough from Nehemiah 8.8. 8. So, hutas plus gar. The word gar usually means for, but here it's the epexegetic use of the particle gar. And it's used to begin an anticipated commentary or explanation of who Melchizedek is. 
He's been referred to by name in 5.6 of Hebrews and then again in 5.10 and then after a very long section in verse 20, he's referred to again, Melchizedek. So we're already asking, who is this Melchizedek? Who is this Melchizedek? So the author has done a wonderful rhetorical job of causing us to anticipate or causing the readers or hearers to anticipate an explication or an explanation, or you could call it an exposition on just who this Melchizedek is. So Hebrews 7.1 begins with, and again, I think this is the proper sense. Now about this Melchizedek. Now like the Levitical priests on the Day of Atonement, Melchizedek appears twice in the OT, OT meaning Old Testament. And this is also like Jesus who appears once to bear the sins of many and a second time without having to deal with sin and to bring salvation to a waiting universe, Hebrews 9.28. Again, notice this. There are two appearances of Melchizedek in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures as they're called. We'll just call it OT for for brevity's sake. Two appearances. One is in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. The other is in Psalm 110.4. Now these two appearances, and you don't usually see this in commentaries, reflect the two appearances of the Levitical priest who appeared once before the people of Israel before going into the Holy of Holies where he presented the atoning sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, and then the a priest would come out and appear a second time, which would assure the people that the sacrifice was accepted by God, and therefore the priest was also accepted as well as his offering. Now, this is also referring, has a reference to Jesus Christ, who had two appearances. His first appearance was to put away sin by the offering of himself in the juncture of the ages, then he will appear a second time without having to deal with sin to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And as we've mentioned before and will mention again, his second appearance brings salvation to an entire creation of anticipating and groaning creation, including the living and dead of the human race over the course of all human history. So I want to emphasize this point again. Like the Levitical priests on the Day of Atonement, Melchizedek appears twice in the Old Testament. And this is also like Jesus who appeared once to bear the sins of many and a second time without having to deal with sin and to bring salvation on to a waiting universe, Hebrews 9.28. The archpriest of the Levitical order appeared once to the people of Israel before going into the Holy of Holies, and I'm repeating here, once a year with the blood of animals that were sacrificed. He then appeared to them a second time to assure them that the blood that he offered and that he himself as archpriest was accepted by God. If for some reason the offering or the priest himself had not been accepted, the archpriest would have died in the Lord's presence like Nadab and Abihu did. Two sons of Aaron died by fire before the presence of the Lord in Leviticus 10, 1 to 12, 1 to 2. It says they offered strange fire. They didn't go by the protocols that God had for the archpriests. So when the priest appeared a second time, it was a rejoicing situation because the people would see that the offering was accepted for the purification of their sins for the past year, the ritual purification of their sins. Of course, that had nothing to do with and did not have the power or potency to give a decisive purgation or purification of their conscience. Only Jesus' sacrifice did that. So when the archpriest appeared a second time, it assured the people that the sins of the archpriest, that he offered the sacrifice for himself, and the people of Israel for the last year 
had been ceremonially, at least, purified. When Christ appears the second time, it will be to bring salvation, the salvation that he secured for all of humanity and all of creation. It's called an eternal salvation in Hebrews 5.9, an eternal salvation or eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12. His appearance will also show that his self-offering to God to take away the sin of the whole cosmos was accepted by God. That will be a time of extraordinary joy and rejoicing that will never end. That Melchizedek had but two appearances in the Old Testament is significant, therefore, for these reasons. We don't have a lot about him in there, but what is in there is extraordinarily significant. This always makes me think, if this writer can do so much with three or four verses in Genesis and one verse in in the Psalms, if he can do this much with that, then how many times do we just skip over a little interchange between two people in the scriptures or a little pericope or episode in the scriptures that we don't think is significant, but if we were listening to the Holy Spirit, perhaps we could turn it into another epistle to the Hebrews, another homily. And so there's so much in the scripture that we have not tapped and That's something that I realize all the time. In effect, then, the teaching pastor lists certain things about Melchizedek from his appearance, his first appearance in the OT, Genesis 14, technically just verses 18 to 20, although he deals with the context around that. So, in effect, the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews lists or enumerates certain things about Melchizedek from his first appearance in the OT, things that are important to the pastor's dissertation. It may be best in giving the sense of the first three verses of Hebrews 7 then, and I've already begun to do this in previous increments, to see them as an enumeration, or we could even say a list of things about this Melchizedek. Some of the items in this list are things that are directly stated. Now, remember our two messages on inferences? They're coming into play here because other things are inferred about what is said about Melchizedek. In other words, he takes some things that are directly said about him, that he's king of righteousness, for example, and that he's king of peace, for example, but he also takes things that are not said about him, and he also takes things that are inferred in what is said about him. And so all of these are very important. Some of the items in this list are things that are directly stated, I'm repeating. Other things are inferred by what is said. Still other things are inferred by what is not said. And here's a reflection of this enumeration. My translation is intended to reflect the sense of an enumeration or a list of things about this Melchizedek. Hebrews 7.1, and this is again my working translation for the present time. Now about this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to God most high, who met with Abraham and blessed him as he returned from the defeat of the kings, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. First, see, you have the sense of a list here, protos. First, the interpretation of his name is king of righteousness, Basileus Dikaiosune. Then he is also king of Salem, an actual city-state at the time, which means king of peace, Irenes, Basileus, Irenes. Without father, that doesn't say that in the passage in Genesis, that he was without father. It doesn't say that he was without mother either. So the writer is taking some inferences from what is not said to make a case later on down the line. I'm not going to deal with that in this increment. But he goes on to say, neither having beginning of days, 
nor end of life. Doesn't say that in the Genesis passage, but there's a scriptural inference there about it. But made like, and I would rather translate that more precisely as, or made a prefiguration of the Son of God. He, in effect, remains a priest perpetually. That's our translation so far. And so I'm going to give you some explanation. In Hebrews 7, 1 to 2a, he gives what may be construed as a long title. You read books, especially old-time books, where you have a short title, and then underneath it you'll have a long title, which really explains much more about what the work you're about to read is about. And if we were to give a long title to this segment of the homily, this is what the writer did, and here's his long title. About this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to God most high, who met with Abraham and blessed him as a return from the defeat of the kings to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. So you say, what about Melchizedek? And the writer would say, you mean this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to God most high, who met with Abraham and blessed him as he returned from the defeat of the kings to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything? You mean that Melchizedek? To which we would reply, yeah, that Melchizedek. We should already derive several things of importance from the title of this section. This Melchizedek, who has formally been mentioned in this homily with reference to his second appearance in the Old Testament, that being Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, mentioned in Hebrews 5.6, 5.10, and 6.20. We derive that he is both a king, Basileus, specifically the king of Salem, and a priest, Hierus, priest. Already there's something about this Melchizedek. There's something about Mary. Wasn't that a movie? Well, there's something about Melchizedek. There's something about this Melchizedek that distinguishes him from the priests and archpriests of Aaron's order, none of whom were kings or even of a royal line or tribe. Moreover, this Melchizedek is not just a priest like other priests from the region of Canaan where Salem was found. They were priests to many of the gods who make up the pantheon of Canaanite idols, what may be called lesser gods, Elohim with a small e, who are not gods at all, but dead idols. Psalm 115 comes to mind. Melchizedek is rather a priest of the Most High God. The Most High God. To theu to hupsisto. And that word hupsisto, H-U-P-S-I-S-T-O-U, is sort of like the word that we've already seen in Hebrews chapter 1, where Jesus is said to be seated next to the majesty on high, on high, a word that's similar to this, but not exactly like it. I think it's hupselus in the heights. So you'll see all this in print, the Greek text, etc. if you're interested. If you're not, you can just skip over that and go all straight English. So Melchizedek is a priest of the most high God, most high Hupsisto reminds us of the fact that God is seated on a throne in the ultimate heights of the heavens, that which Paul describes in Ephesians 1.20b through 21 as, quote, in the heavens far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every name named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul, like the PT, has a two-age cosmology. In the heavens are the thrones of a multitude of angelic beings. We know this also from the poem in Colossians 1.15 through 20. They're called principalities and powers. The Most High God is seated far above all of these thrones. When Jesus, God's beloved Son, had obtained eternal redemption by his own blood, he sat down at the right hand of the Most High God, far above all principalities and powers. The way Hebrews puts it is in 1.4. He received a name. Notice commonality between Hebrews 1.4 and Ephesians 1.21. He received a name and a title that is above all names, and when his name is announced in his second appearance, every tongue will acknowledge that Yahweh is Jesus. To the glory of God the Father, not to the dismay of God the Father. If some man was called Yahweh, God, who isn't God, God the Father would be dismayed but instead, this man is called God to the glory of God the Father. God is happy, gloriously happy. He glories in the fact that Jesus is universally recognized and acknowledged to be Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the universe. So it's to the glory of God. That's Philippians 2.10 to 11. And by the way, God himself swore by himself that this will happen. Isaiah 45.23. Maybe you should think about the fact that if you think many people are going to perish in hell, you're disagreeing with God's oath-fortified oath promise. So after making purification for the sins of the whole world, Jesus, the Son of God, passed through the heavens. He entered into the compartment behind the second curtain of the heavenly Holy of Holies, having secured everlasting redemption by his blood, his own blood. Then he sat down at the right side of the throne of God in the highest height of the heavens, having received a name that is above all the angels' names. Melchizedek was a priest to this most high God. Jesus is also a priest to the most high God, whom Jesus calls my father. He also calls the Most High God your Father. I go to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God, Jesus said in John 20, 17. When he said to pray, pray our Father. That's Jesus' Father and yours and mine. In Revelation 1, 5 and 6, we came to Hebrews through Rev the book, Jesus Christ the faithful martyr, the firstborn out from among the dead ones, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, the ruler of the kings of the earth, loved us and freed us from our sins by his own blood, and listen to this, and made us a kingdom, all of us priests to God, even his father. Now that we are kings and priests, not going to be, are, that we are kings and priests means that we have, listen carefully, a graced participation with Jesus Christ, who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That means that we all have the equal privilege of a graced participation with the man Christ Jesus in his vocation of mediation. 
Now that this Melchizedek met with Abraham after the patriarch returned from the slaughter of the kings. Notice the word king and kings that's scattered throughout this whole thing. It's salted in this whole passage. Melchizedek met with Abraham after the patriarch returned from the slaughter of the kings. That's suggestive of the fact that Melchizedek remained a king after these other kings were removed from the picture, subdued, as it were. There's a faint suggestion here, and what is a faint suggestion became a hard suggestion to me, a faint suggestion here that Melchizedek represents the king of kings. Kings and king. King, singular, and kings, plural, are both key words in, this, in these opening verses of Hebrews 7. King of Salem. Then it speaks of the defeat of the kings. King of righteousness. King of peace. It's also important to note that Melchizedek met Abraham in a place called the valley or the plain of a king. Some translations say the plain of the kings, valley of the kings. Melchizedek is radically distinguished, however, from all the other kings mentioned in the context of his first appearance. He is distinguished, for example, from King Coder Legomor and from the other Canaanite kings who were part of his axis. And he is also distinguished from the king of Sodom, whose reward Abram spurned and rejected. What is not often mentioned in commentaries is the subtle suggestion that Melchizedek is a prefiguration of one who will be called king of kings. 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 17.14, Revelation 19.16. Abram, the patriarch, recognized the greatness of Melchizedek. And this is indicated by the act of Abraham apportioning a tenth of everything, the spoils of war, that is, to this Melchizedek. Now, this act on the part of Abraham is not necessarily an act of worship, as some assume. So we must be careful not to attribute divinity to Melchizedek, as some have done. Quoting from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the custom of giving a tenth part of the spoils of war to priests and kings was a very ancient one among most nations. That's what International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says on the subject of tithe. In Genesis 18, when Abraham did recognize the visitor to his home to be Yahweh, who came with two Terminator angels, he actually prayed to him for his nephew, Lot of Sodom. No prayers were made by Abram to Melchizedek, in contrast to that. Nor was there any overt acts of worship that would be proper if one recognized someone to be divine. When Abram recognized who Yahweh was, his visitor was, he said, I who am but dust and ashes dare to ask you this one more time if there were 50 people, uh, 30, 20, 10 in Sodom, would you spare it? He didn't say anything like that to Melchizedek. Here, I who am but dust and ashes prostrated on the ground, Here's a tenth of the spoils. No, he simply apportioned a tenth of the spoils to this Melchizedek. He did recognize this man's superior dignity and office and his even that recognized that this priest and king was superior 
to Abraham himself, the patriarch, the one with the promises. So, in Genesis 18, again, in contrast, and this is my own observation, when Abraham did recognize the visitor to his home to be Yahweh, he actually prayed to that visitor as God for his nephew Lot of Sodom. No prayers were made by Abram to Melchizedek, nor was there any overt acts of worship that would be proper if one recognized someone to be divine. The suggestion so far then, and this is so far, is that this Melchizedek was a, an actual historical figure, a real human person, a human being, and a dignitary of note who held the dual office of a king and a priest and who lived in an actual city-state in Canaan called Salem, that he had to, the power to bless Abraham showed him to be greater than Abraham in terms of rank and power. Melchizedek's greatest significance is what, or better, who, the scripture makes him symbolize. I'll say that again. Melchizedek's greatest significance is what, or who, the scripture makes him symbolize. In our theological exegesis of Hebrews, we are now in the field of bibliology, the study of the Bible itself. So the enumeration begins in earnest with, first, the interpretation of his name means king of righteousness. In Romans, we came to our study of Hebrews through our study of Romans, reading Romans with the light on, the word righteousness in Romans was shown to mean God's act of salvation. In Psalm 22:31, God's righteousness is what he has done. And this is evident from the thesis verse in Romans 1.17. Romans 1.17 is the thesis verse for all of Romans. And it alludes to Psalm 98.2, which says, Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. This is called a distich. A distich is when the thing mentioned in the first line is the same as the thing mentioned in the second line, or at least has intimate correspondence with the thing mentioned in the second line. First line, Yahweh has revealed or made known his salvation. Second line, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. There's a universality to the revelation of his righteousness Therefore, there is a universality to the revelation of his salvation. But in Habakkuk 2.4, we also have an allusion to that verse in Romans 1.17, which says, but the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. In the thesis verse of Romans 1.17, and throughout the epistle, the apostle does two things. First, he equates God's righteousness with salvation, which God has revealed apocalyptically in the sight of the nations. And that ultimately means the revelation of salvation in the crucified Christ. The nations who will be blessed by Abraham's seed are mentioned here, Christ, which is all the nations, including Israel. Second, what Paul does, the apostle, he shows that the righteous one in Romans 1.17 to be Jesus, and we know this from other passages like Acts 22.14, like 1 Peter 3.18, 1 John 2.1, that the righteous one, Isaiah 53.11, the righteous one is Jesus Christ. So he shows the righteous one to be Jesus through whose faithfulness he was resurrected and in his resurrection, all were justified. In this thesis verse of Romans and throughout the epistle, Paul magnifies Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance, therefore, as the righteous one. Now, that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness 
shows this man to be a prefiguration of Jesus Christ, who, as king of kings, is the salvation of the nations, all of humanity. God has made him to be both wisdom, sanctification, and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30, which means God has made him to be salvation. God has made him to be sin on the cross so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. God has made Jesus to be our salvation. We see Jesus, we see our salvation. We see Jesus, we see the universal salvation that God has wrought in him. Second, it's also significant that this, this Melchizedek is king of Salem, Basileus Salem. Salem is a transliteration of the Hebrew Shalom, related in turn to Shalom. We saw that before. Included among the meanings of Shalom, and this is very important, is the word completeness. Peace isn't just a feeling of tranquility. It's a completion or a completeness of one's being or well-being. So completeness. And what's Hebrews all about but completion? What are 56 Psalms all about? Es totelos, completion. So among the meanings of shalom, and the primary meaning probably, is completion, completeness. It also has the meanings, prominent meanings of security, well-being, prosperity, and peace. Let's hunker down on this word, well-being. Well-being. So the city-state of which Melchizedek was a king was actually called Salem. And according to the notes in the Net Bible on Genesis 14, 18, quote, Salem is traditionally identified as the Jebusite stronghold of old Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So the association of Melchizedek with Salem is like the association of Jesus with the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city-state of which he is the great king. The great king. What year is this again? The year of the great king. So is every year, but we dubbed this year specifically that. I'll say it again. The association of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, with Salem, which means peace, is like the association with, of Jesus with the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city-state of which he is the great king. Matthew 5.35, Jesus speaks of the city of the great king. And he's alluding, of course, to Psalm 48, 1 and 2. Also in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, that city-state is that of which we are already citizens in Hebrews 12, 24 to 20, 22 to 24. We are already citizens of heaven. That heavenly city-state, that Ura, Napolis, Philippians 3, 20. As Hebrews puts it, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. You're already a citizen. To the city of the living God. You're already a citizen. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now this city of the living God is also called the city of the great king. Psalm 48.2, Septuagint 48.3. Hey, Paulus to Basileus to Megalu, the city of the great king. You'll see it in print. This year and every year, therefore, is the year of the great king. Our great king is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace, because Salem means peace. That's what the PT says. Peace, among other things, means well-being, as I've said before. And here's where it gets right down to your heart and my heart, our most inner being, our most interior 
being. Well-being is what peace means. In the extraordinary, and I do mean extraordinary, introduction to a book entitled On the Cosmic Mystery of Jesus Christ, Selected Writings from St. Maximus the Confessor, Paul M. Blowers and Robert Louis Wilkin wrote of Maximus' three laws. Now, I hope you're listening, Joe Corvey, because you said many years ago, right down here, you told me you wanted to hear more about Maximus. And you'll hear more about Maximus because of all those ancient writers that I've read about all the way through the patristic era, and he was really up into the seventh century, around 648 and beyond, A.D. Maximus, I have more of a, an affinity with him, meaning that the insights the Lord has given to me are more like Maximus's than almost any other ancient theologian that I've read. And I'll hopefully explain this a little bit more. And it's something to discover this on the 43rd, at the end of the 43rd year of ministry here in the Pittsburgh area to discover this. Maximus. Yes, that was the name of the general in the Gladiator movie. But it's also, more significantly, the name of a profoundly insightful and incisive theologian. So in, and this Paul M. Blowers, B-L-O-W-E-R-S, and Robert Louis Wilkin did a marvelous job on the introduction to this book on the cosmic mystery of Jesus Christ and did selected writings from St. Maximus the Confessor. In their introduction, which that's the only thing I've read so far, and it's phenomenal. It took me several days to work through it, even though it's probably about 40 pages or so. In that introduction, these men spoke of Maximus' three laws, which, quote, exhibit the principal ends to which human nature is called. Wouldn't you want to know what the principal ends to which human nature is called? Are, I would. And those principal ends, those laws are th three. Here's one, here they are. The natural law, and I'm quoting from them, grants us the fundamental enjoyment of being. Have you got that? The fundamental enjoyment of being. What if today you don't take a walk, you don't take a jog, you don't do a workout, you don't fulfill your hobby, you don't read a good book, you don't see a good movie, you don't do a good day, get good and rewarding day's work? You just, what if you just were? What if you just were rejoicing that you are? That's the fundamental enjoyment of being. People don't have that fundamental enjoyment of being. French call it joie de vivre. The joy of just being, the joy of living, the joy of being. You know, you could have not been, but you are by God's will. So we're, we should be at least appreciating that we are rather than aren't. And that God called us into being because once we weren't, now we are. God who calls things that don't exist into existence is also the same God who gives life to the dead, Romans 4.17. So I'm kind of extrapolating on this or not extrapolating as much as elaborating. So again, the first law of Maximus is the fundamental enjoyment of being. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, as we call it, doesn't matter to that one. But the second law is called, he called it the scriptural law. And that is, quote, the enjoyment of a higher well-being. Not just being, but a higher well-being. What I would call that 
higher well-being, I would call the Christian life. Or what I like to call the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And that is the enjoyment of a higher well-being. Why do we listen to the word? Why do we listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches? Because he's leading us into a higher well-being and the enjoyment of a higher well-being in fellowship with Jesus Christ and with God the Father and with one another. We don't understand that. All our meetings together are meaningless. Meaningless meetings and I don't blame a lot of people for flocking away from churches because all they are is a social milieu that isn't much different from social media. Now, the third law he calls the spiritual law, and that is the beatific grace of eternal well being. That's what Fran Johns is experiencing right now. That's what his daughter Rochelle is experiencing right now. That's what your loved ones who have passed into the presence of the Lord are experiencing right now. The beatific grace of eternal well-being. That's the third law. As the king of peace, therefore, see how this all applies? You don't find this in a commentary. This is a connection I'm making today. As the king of peace, Jesus gives us not only the fundamental enjoyment of being, he gives us the enjoyment of a higher well-being that is the present experience of the kingdom of God. Romans 14, 17. He gives us his, his peace. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. John 14, 17. He gives us his peace. Jesus is also the guarantee and guarantor of a beatific grace of eternal well-being, of eternal peace. The guarantee of it, the guarantor of it. In fact, Ephesians 2.14 says Jesus is our peace. We see Jesus, we see our peace. Now, as we move to a close in this increment today, we're reminded here, at least I am, I hope you will be, reminded of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which in the Septuagint is 9, 5, and 6, where the Son given to us, Jesus, is called the Prince of Peace. King of Peace, Prince of Peace. Moreover, the prophet Isaiah says of him, and this is extraordinarily important. The prophet Isaiah says of him that the increase of the government of his peace has no end. This is a powerful declaration of Jesus' universally saving significance. The universal impact of his death and resurrection is peace. It's the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth. It's the universal submission of all creation that is salvation. It is the universal submission. His government of peace is the submission of salvation of all creation. The universal submission that is salvation on the part of all creation. Observe, therefore, how much can be derived from what might escape our notice as an obscure or unimportant segment of scripture. What if you just read Abraham meeting Melchizedek, tithing, being blessed by him, and you just read that as a, an episode in the life of Abraham and moved on without even giving it any thought? Well, observe how much can be derived from what escape our notice, might escape our notice as an obscure or unimportant segment of scripture. This is bibliology now. Long before the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration, and I'm repeating myself here, there was a priest who was also a king. It was someone greater than Abraham, someone whom God made a prefiguration. I don't even know if that's a word, but it is now, of his son, 
who was his son, who was to be a priest and a king. Melchizedek is not a priest forever, except in one sense, in the sense that he is portrayed as a priest and a king in scripture, which is forever. So Abraham is, or rather Melchizedek is a priest forever in the sense that he is said to be a priest in the scripture, which is forever. Psalm 118, 89 in the Septuagint, English translation 119, 89, your word is forever settled in heaven. So I'm going to say that again because it's something that is a phantasm at first. But Melchizedek is not a priest forever, except in the sense that he's portrayed as a priest and a king in the scripture, which is forever. Jesus is a priest forever and in reality is perpetually a priest. Both declared in the scripture and both and actual in reality in the heavenlies is that and always will be that. So all that is said of this Melchizedek in Hebrews 7 shows him to be a scriptural prefiguration of Jesus the Son of God. We're dealing in the realm of bibliology here, not Dead Sea Scroll mystical speculation. The PT is eminently knowledgeable of the scripture and of how to interpret the scriptures Christologically like Paul and Peter also did. And like Jesus said, these testify of me. You interpret these scriptures Christologically or you interpret them incorrectly. Paul and Peter also did. I'm thinking of doing an increment in the maybe near future in which I use alliteration and the popping of many P's. The PT, the Peter, PT, Peter, and Paul. The PT and Peter and Paul and the prophets. And it will be given on the anniversary, the 43rd anniversary of my own arrival here in the area. So I, I'm only saying that because the message will have significance to you all. It is what the scripture says about Melchizedek. This is going to be a thesis in our Hebrew study. It is what the scripture says about Melchizedek and what the scripture does not say of Melchizedek, but what can be inferred from what they conspicuously do not say that we come to understand the significance of this Melchizedek. So our consideration of Melchizedek will be not along the lines of mystical speculation, but scriptural interpretation. We're dealing here with a the theological functional specialty called interpretation. So bibliology and interpretation. That Melchizedek was made like the Son of God, and we'll deal with this more down the road, means that the scripture made him to be a symbolic type or prefiguration of the Son of God. When we understand this, we avoid the errors of undue speculation. I'm not against speculation, but I am against undue or inordinate speculation. We see in this Melchizedek a kind of adumbration or foreshadowing of Jesus, the Son of God. Melchizedek was not made like the Son of God by being deified or transformed into a divine being. That's speculation. No, he was, quote, made like the Son of God in the sense that the Holy Spirit the author of scripture, made him to be a type, that which I'm calling a prefiguration of the Son of God. And so with that said, let's close in prayer. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the assurance that our Lord Jesus Christ is the guarantee and guarantor of an eternal well-being that we can't even imagine, but we can only anticipate with great joy and indescribable joy, full of glory.
And I pray that you'll give that to friend John's family and friends and in-laws. And I pray that you will give that to all who have recently lost loved ones. I pray that you'll give them that unspeakable joy and full of glory, that it may balance out their grief, balance out their sorrow, which is natural. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.